Well, brethren, it's good to be together again this morning, and it looks like from the brightness in your eyes that God answered our prayer of last night and gave us all a good night of rest. Let's pray now and ask the Lord's help in our time together this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we are very conscious that a good night of rest is indeed a gift from you. Your word tells us that you give unto your beloved sleep, and you give to your beloved in sleep. And we thank you for giving us refreshment of mind and of body, that none of us lay upon our beds tossing and turning in excruciating pain. We thank you for the measure of good health with which we have greeted a new day. And we thank you for the privilege of being found together again in this context of our mutual desire to be what you would have us to be as men and as ministers of the new covenant. And so we come seeking again from your hand that which we desperately need in this hour, the guidance and direction of your Holy Spirit, help to think clearly concerning these matters of how best to construct sermons that will awaken the lost, that will point them to Christ, that will edify and strengthen your people. Lord, you know that we have no desire to be known as great preachers, but we have deep desires to be greatly useful in the advancement of your kingdom. To this end, grant your servant help as he instructs his brethren. Give to your other servants discernment that they may prove all things and hold fast to that which is good. Meet with us then in this hour as we seek your help through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. 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 Well, yesterday I sought to give a general introduction to this segment in our pastoral theology lectures, uh, particularly trying to underscore the place of both general revelation and special revelation in this category of our study. And then I identified the three kinds of sermons that we will preach in the course of our ministerial lives, taking the simplest uh, division of them into the uh, textual, I'm sorry, into the uh, topical expository, the textual expository, and the consecutive expository sermon. Then I began to address the relative advantages and potential liabilities of each kind of those sermons. The advantages and liabilities both to our hearers and to ourselves as preachers. And we had time only to cover the uh, topical expository sermon in our last lecture. And so in this lecture, hopefully we will take up the relative advantages and potential disadvantages of both the textual expository and the consecutive expository sermon. If you're following along in your uh, notebooks, you will find this on page 5, little letter B. So we take up then together the relative advantages and potential disadvantages 
of the textual expository sermon. And I hope you remember my analogy of what the textual expository sermon is. It's a sermon in which we take an individual verse of Scripture or part of a verse or a relatively small segment or possibly even a whole chapter. And in that exposition, all of the materials are drawn from that text itself. And we bring in other actors and other events into the stage of that exposition only so far as this is necessary to validate and confirm the legitimacy of the meaning we have attached to the phrases, to the words, to the thought units of that particular text. And there are indeed specific benefits of this kind of preaching to our hearers. And I want to identify three such benefits to our hearers. First of all, such preaching creates a climate of heightened expectation as to what text the Spirit of God has laid upon the mind and the heart of the preacher. Try to imagine what it was like if you were a member of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in the days of Spurgeon, wondering Lord's Day by Lord's Day what text had fastened itself upon the mind of Spurgeon. What text he had gone into his study after six o'clock Saturday night and hammered into those sermons that still edify millions around the world in God alone knows how many languages. Obviously, there'd be a tremendous sense of expectancy, Lord's Day by Lord's Day. What has Christ, the head of the church, fastened upon the mind and the spirit of his servant by which he is going to feed us and point us afresh to our blessed Lord Jesus? And so when we are engaged in this kind of preaching, where we're taking a text, we are not preaching a series then there can be amongst our people a legitimate sense of expectancy. Secondly, one of the advantages of this kind of preaching is that a well-structured textual expository sermon provides a good footing in the memories of our people. If it is well-constructed, they should be able, from that point on, whenever they look at that specific text, If they don't remember the exact wording of your headings, they can think through how you opened up that text and it fastens itself upon their memories. And then thirdly, a good textual expository sermon provides a pattern for our people in analyzing a specific portion of the Word of God. If we're letting the text itself speak its own message, then our people are learning in that kind of preaching how they should approach the Word of God, how they should extract its principles of truth, its application to their hearts and to their lives. But then it has great benefits to the preacher himself. First of all, a textual expository sermon forces the preacher to be honest with the very words of Scripture. If he's not using the text simply to preach a topical message, which he may do. For example, someone might take 1 Corinthians 1, where we are told that 
in the wisdom of the world, it knew not God, and we might say we're going to preach on this subject, the futility of human wisdom to come to the knowledge of God. Take the statement of that text, isolate it as a fundamental thematic principle, and preach a topical sermon. That's been done to great profit in the history of the church. But I'm talking about a textual expository sermon where we are committed to open up the thought patterns contained in that entire text. This is greatly profitable to the preacher because it forces him to be honest with the very words, the very thought patterns, the grammatical connections in the words of Scripture. Secondly, a textual expository sermon forces a preacher to be consistent with the proportionate emphases of the Word of God. He may be preaching on a text where there is one dominant idea and two subdominant ideas. And if he's handling that text with integrity, he will not raise all three thoughts to the same level. He will be forced to acknowledge and perhaps say to his people, I have three heads because there were three units of thought in this text, but I will be spending a disproportionate amount of time in my first heading or second heading or third heading simply because it's the dominant thought in that particular text. And so it will force you and me as preachers to be consistent with those proportionate emphases of the Word of God. But then the third advantage to textual preaching is that it allows the man of God the liberty of preaching on specific texts which have gripped him in the course of his own devotions, his reading, or his observations of the needs of his people. And here Spurgeon speaks to us out of his own experience when he writes, Is there any difficulty in obtaining text? I remember in my earlier days reading somewhere in a volume of lectures upon homiletics a statement which considerably alarmed me at the time. It was something to this effect. If a man shall find difficulty in selecting a text, he had better at once go back to the grocer's shop or to the plow, for he evidently has not the capacity required for a minister." Now, as such had been very frequently my cross and burden, I inquired within myself whether I should resort to some form of secular labor and leave the ministry. But I've not done so, for I still have the conviction that although condemned by the sweeping judgment of the lecturer, I follow a call to which God has manifestly set his seal." It was so much, I was so much in trouble of conscience through the aforesaid severe remark that I asked my grandfather, who had been in the ministry some fifty years, whether he was ever perplexed in choosing his theme. He told me frankly that this had always been his greatest trouble compared with which preaching in itself was no anxiety at all. I remember the venerable man's remark, The difficulty is not because there are not enough texts, but because there are so many, and I am in a strait between them. And then he goes on to use the analogy of someone who goes out into a beautiful garden, but he's authorized to pick only one flower, 
And he must range over all the different flowers until he comes to that choice flower that he wants to pick. And this is one of the delights and one of the benefits of textual expository preaching in that it gives the preacher the liberty to take that text which unsought often in one's own devotional reading fastens itself upon the conscience, upon the affections, and you find yourself leaving the chair where you read your Bible, going to your desk, jotting down thoughts that just seem to flow in that instance of your own dealings with God, if you have your conscience bound by a notion you shouldn't take individual texts, you in a sense are quenching the Holy Spirit who is making that text grip you so that through you it might be an instrument of grace to your, pre- to your people. So, these are the benefits to the preacher. But now there are potential dangers both to our hearers and to us as preachers. And I want to highlight two of those potential dangers to our hearers. They may, first of all, cultivate an itch for the novel and more striking words of Scripture. With that expectation may come a carnal itch for the striking text of Scripture, those that in the very wording of them uh, bristle and uh, sparkle when there are many portions in the Word of God that upon first sight don't sparkle, they don't bristle, yet they need to be preached to our people. So there is the potential danger if people get excessive textual expository preaching that they will cultivate that carnal itch. And secondly, if one preaches a textual sermon without giving due consideration to the larger and more immediate context of that text, where context is a vital factor in discovering the mind of God in the text, then all the dangers of a topical expository sermon are present. So you can go back over your notes and remind yourself of those dangers. But there are also potential dangers for the preacher himself. And to me, this first one is the greatest. He can become vulnerable to the exquisite agony of excessive subjectivism in the selection of of his text. And this is something I, alas, know all too well. Back when I was in the itinerant ministry for five years, had no regular congregation, no regular preaching, I can remember literally spending whole afternoons agonizing, Lord, what text shall I bring to these people? And I'd start down one road, and then it would be blocked, and then down another Hours and hours to one day I finally said, Lord, you're not the author of confusion. This is not right. And I had to work through some of that exquisite agony of excessive subjectivism. And Spurgeon, without realizing it, gives me all the fuel any lecturer needs on this particular danger. Listen to what Spurgeon says. I confess that I frequently sit... Hour after hour, praying and waiting for a subject, and that this is the main part of my study, 
Much hard labor have I spent in manipulating topics, ruminating upon points of doctrine, making skeletons out of verses, and then burying every bone of them in the catacombs of oblivion. Then he has another image, sailing on and on over leagues of broken water till I see the red lights and I make sail direct to the desired haven. I believe that almost any Saturday night in my life, I make enough outlines of sermons, if I felt at liberty to preach them, to last me for a month. But I no more dare to use them than an honest mariner would run to shore a cargo of contraband goods. Themes flit before the mind, one after another, like images passing across the photographer's, the photographer's lens. But until the mind is like the sensitive photographic plate which retains the picture, the subjects are valueless to us. And so convinced was Spurgeon that that's the way we ought to wait for a text. He says, wait for that elect word even if you wait till within an hour of the service. This may not be understood by cool, calculating men who are not moved by impulses as we are. But to some of us, these things are a law in our hearts against which we dare not offend. We tarry at Jerusalem until power is given." And some of us would say, if we were to wait within an hour, not only would power be given, but madness. That intense subjectivism, and of course we have to say to his own master, a servant stands or falls. But for Spurgeon to say to young men, my pattern in this ought to be your pattern, I say, Mr. Spurgeon, you overstepped your bounds. As much as I admire him at this point, he was unwise to get into the consciences of young men with such a perspective. And that's one of the potential dangers to the preacher. He is vulnerable to this exquisite agony of excessive subjectivism. Secondly, the preacher is vulnerable to the danger of manipulating the text in order to attain a measure of homiletical finesse. Some men, and I think there's a reason why we are internally inclined to three heads to our sermons. I think it's a reflection that we're made in the image of God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, unity and trinity, trinity and unity, but that's another whole subject. But some men so determined they must have three, when in reality the text only makes one point, or maybe two, or maybe five. And we are vulnerable to the danger of manipulating the substance of the text in order to have homiletical finesse. And we must be aware of that. And then thirdly, the preacher is vulnerable to the danger of imbalance and a lack of symmetry in his overall preaching ministry. He may constantly be looking for texts that appear more readily preachable. And yet there are texts that contain vital truth for our people that on the surface of things, they are not looking at us in blinking bright orange saying, preach me, preach me, preach me. They may look like they got fine preach. If ever you preach, pass me by. 
when in reality they contain stuff that our people desperately need. And so the preacher could get in the habit of looking for texts that appear more readily preachable. And he may also then seek out texts which are to his liking or in the area of his present comfortable competence. Our flesh does not like to be pressed and stretched. We all like the easy road. And if we are committed to excessive textual preaching, we will have a real temptation to be drawn to the text that give us a framework to express truth in an area where we have comfortable competence rather than being stretched to express truths that perhaps are new to us or perhaps are not as refined in our thinking, and to preach that text adequately, we would be driven to levels of new and intense study. And if then we are guilty of falling prey to this danger, we are not forced to expand our minds or to round out our perspectives on the Word of God. So, those are the advantages and the potential disadvantages of the textual expository sermon. Now we come thirdly to the relative advantages and potential disadvantages of the consecutive expository preaching. Now remember my analogy in describing what it is. The stage is all set by the passage we're going to preach. All of the actors and action are taken from that Two, three verses, paragraph, however much we have marked out in the boundaries of our consecutive exposition, and we only import other passages in order to validate that the meaning we've assigned is indeed the proper meaning. That's our consecutive expository sermon. It must have rhetorical unity in itself. But it must also be evident how this part fits with the whole, like a serial play that has various segments. This segment is attached to this and is leading to that. And in consecutive expository ministry, that must be the hallmark of our preaching. What then are the benefits or advantages of such preaching? Well, first of all, there are benefits to our hearers. And I want to underscore five such benefits. Number one, under consecutive expository preaching, the Bible is seen in its own native form and substance. And though I'm not going to read all of the quotes, I am going to read from Alexander and you have Dabney and Taylor in your notes and can read them at your leisure, this is probably the primary benefit to our hearers of consecutive expository preaching. Listen to Alexander's perceptive insights. The expository method, and he means consecutive exposition, of preaching is best fitted to communicate the knowledge of scriptural truth In its connection, the knowledge of the Bible is something more than the knowledge of isolated sentences. It includes a full acquaintance with the relation which every proposition sustains to the narrative or argument of which it is a part. 
This is particularly true of trains of reasoning where everything depends on the cognizance of the links which connect the several truths and the order in which those truths are presented. Large portions of Holy Writ are closely argumentative and can be understood in their true intention only when the whole scope and sequence of the terms are considered. And this is a profound statement. This logical connection is no less the result of inspiration than is any individual statement. In some books of Scripture, the argument runs from beginning to end, and the clue to the whole is to be sought in the analysis of the reasoning. As instances of this, we may cite the epistles to the Romans and the Hebrews, of which no man can have any adequate conception who has not been familiar with all of their parts as constituting a logical whole. This, however, is so universally conceded as a first principle of hermeneutics that it is needless to press it further. And you have Dabney saying essentially the same thing and William Taylor. And if we are determined under God over the long haul, to cultivate in our people a biblical view of the Bible, it is in consecutive expository preaching that we are most likely to attain that goal. Then secondly, proper principles of sound interpretation and application are most readily seen and absorbed by our people. We have a ministry that is what we might call the immediate cognitive ministry, where if you speak to your people at the end of a service, what did you learn today? They may give you some of the substance of the sermon, the passage that was expounded. What they don't realize is that they are absorbing in an almost unconscious way a method of handling their own Bibles when they sit in the chair where they have their own devotions or they sit at the table or the living room with their families, they are absorbing or not absorbing proper principles of sound interpretation and application. We are teaching them by the manner in which we consecutively expound the Scriptures. This is what Dabney says. We have no better description of the preacher's work than that given by Nehemiah of Ezra's, that he, quote, read in the book of the law of the Lord distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. A prime object of pastoral teaching is to teach the people how to read the Bible for themselves. A sealed book cannot be interesting. If it be read without the key of comprehension, it cannot be instructive. Now it is the preacher's business in his public discourses to give his people teaching by example in the art of interpreting the word. He should exhibit before them in actual use the methods by which the legitimate meaning is to be evolved. Fragmentary fragmentary preaching, however brilliant, will never do this. 
the pastor must teach his flock how to expound for themselves by frequent practice in company with them. And that indeed is one of the greatest benefits to our hearers of consecutive expository preaching. But then there is a third benefit. I've stated it this way. Unsavory but necessary subjects are naturally introduced in the course of consecutive expository preaching. And here again you have the quote from Dabney, the essence of which is this. He says, if you were to stand up on any given Lord's Day and say you were going to preach on the sin of fornication or the evils of divorce, there might be some who say, what kind of sins do you suspect are going on among your people? However, if you're preaching through 1 Corinthians, you're going to come to chapter 5, you're going to come to chapter 6, and honesty with the text will demand that you address those unsavory subjects, and no one can point the figure at you and say, well, that was not wise, or that was not judicious, or that was not necessary. I can remember when our people were just beginning to get acquainted with the doctrine of election way, way back decades ago, uh, in the early days of Trinity, and I was committed to preach through 1 Thessalonians. It was the first book that I preached through from verse 1 to the last verse in chapter 5. And uh, there were some people who were really chafing at the doctrine of election. And uh, they came to me, and uh, I had preached through chapter 1. And they said, uh, Pastor Martin, when we first came to the church, we loved the preaching, but it seems that all the time now all we hear about is election. I said, uh, you've been here for the expositions of chapter 1? Yes. Open your Bible, please. Let me open my Bible. I said, now, verse 1, Paul addresses the church. Was anything said about election? Well, no. What about verse 2? Well, no. What about verse 3? We give thanks to God, remembering your work of faith, labor of love, patience of hope in our Lord Jesus. Was there anything about election there? Well, no. What about verse 4? Knowing, brethren, beloved of God, your election. I said, did I preach about election? Yes. Why did I do so? Because that's what was in the text. And then we went on to verse 5 all the way through until they had to admit that I was not overemphasizing election. They have a problem with the doctrine of election, but it just came up in the ordinary exposition of the passage. And that could be multiplied many times over, and I'm sure many of you men have had that experience. And it's one of the great advantages of consecutive expository preaching and a little sidebar. It is also the advantage of the practice of consecutive reading through the Old and New Testament as part of the liturgy of our public worship. It's vital, vital. Issues will be brought up that you'd never think of addressing in a hundred years. But there they are in the next passage, in the Old or in the New Testament. So this is one of the great advantages of this kind of preaching. But then, fourthly, the hearers will be most readily prepared for, involved in, and able to conserve the substance of your preaching. In the church that I'm in, out in Holland, I know where the two regular preachers are in their consecutive exposition, and it's a blessing on the Lord's Day morning to prepare my own heart 
by reading what I think will be the portion that's going to be expounded, reflecting upon it, praying, Lord, open it up by your Holy Spirit. Bless your servants that at the end of the day I can go back to those passages and say, well, you dummy, that's so obviously there, why didn't you see it? That's the mark of true exposition. Not people going out saying, oh, isn't that amazing? I would never, never see that in a hundred years. Isn't it marvelous he got that out of that passage? No, no, they should go back and say, well, dummy, that's so obvious in the passage. Why didn't you ever see it? That's the attitude that ought generally to mark our people when we have honestly handled the text. And part of that is they can be prepared by reading ahead, meditating upon it, and then be involved in it. They've got their questions on verse 7. How will the pastor help me to understand that? Oh, good, he's coming to verse 7. Ah, I see it. He's answered my questions. And that's a wonderful experience for you as a preacher to have people at the door say, you know, Pastor, I wondered how in the world you're going to handle that particular thing, but your explanation of it was clear and convincing. You've persuaded my judgment. I believe I understand it now. I mean, that's the kind of thing, again, standing here talking about it, I still get the goosebumps. I'm 75, but I still get goosebumps. When I stop getting goosebumps, I'm going to quit preaching. All right, don't put that in your notes. You can leave it in at the end of the day, Dan. You don't need to expunge that when you edit these things. All right. Then, fifthly, the advantage to our people is this. The element of the natural variety and change in consecutive expository preaching encourages sustained interest in our preaching. There is a natural variety as we're working through large segments, whole books of Scripture, and this helps to sustain the interest of our people. Now, Dabney addresses that. I want to read his quote. He says, Good expository preaching is always permanently attractive and always most attractive to those whom it is most important to attract. You see his point? Who should you be attracting? The true people of God who have a hunger for the Word of God, and they will find good. He didn't say just any consecutive expository preaching, but good expository preaching is always permanently attractive. But all popular readers of the Scriptures have a strong consciousness of their own blindness of mind to much that they read there. They feel that in many places they have not the key of knowledge. Hence, he who proposes to open the meaning of Scripture meets the most serious desire of their religious nature. And that's true, brethren. You don't want to be at the mercy of those that want the more exciting, the more dramatic, the more scintillating kind of preaching. But you want to have a people who over the course of years say, whatever my pastor is or isn't, he is a safe guide in the opening up of the scriptures. And this is one of the great benefits of consecutive expository preaching to our people. But then there are great benefits to the preacher himself. And so I do want to address now 
these benefits to the preacher himself. And the first is, such preaching forces the man of God to be honest with the whole of Scripture. It forces the preacher to be honest with all of the Scriptures. Listen to Alexander. The consecutive expository method is adapted to secure the greatest amount of scriptural knowledge to both preacher and hearers. It needs no argument, we trust, to sustain the position that every minister of the gospel should be mighty in the scriptures, familiar with the whole text, versed in the best commentaries, at home in every portion of both testaments, and accustomed to grapple with the most perplexing difficulties. This is the appropriate and peculiar field of clerical study. It is obvious that the pulpit exercises of every diligent minister will give direction and color to his private lucubrations. That's studying late into the night. If you want to know what a lucubration is, that's studying late into the night. I looked it up again in preparation and wrote the definition in my margin. In order to success in usefulness in any species of discourse, the preacher must love his work and must have it constantly before his mind. His reading, his meditation, and even his casual trains of thought must perpetually revert to the performance of the Sabbath. And we take pleasure in believing that such is actually the case with a large proportion of clergymen, we would say, pastors. So this is the great benefit to the preacher himself. He's constantly being forced to penetrate deeper into the rich mine of God's inscripturated revelation. Secondly, Such preaching enables the man of God to be working ahead, thinking and preparing constantly, which is one of the great benefits, I say, of this matter of consecutive expository preaching. As one author has said, instead of having his spirits consumed for a day by the question, what shall I preach? He proceeds at once to attack the work of preparation which is laid out for him in advance. And that's a great advantage where you can start your work earlier in the week and then knowing what passage you're going to preach, it's with you. You can think upon it as you drift off to sleep. You can think upon it in other pastoral duties so that it is not just coming to you, as it were, as a fresh collection of thoughts in other forms of preaching. But then thirdly, Such preaching saves the man of God from that agony, that exquisite agony of indecision and uncertainty regarding the choice of a text or of a subject. After waiting upon God, consulting with your fellow elders, you make a decision regarding what book or what large section of the Word of God or what biblical character ought to be preached. And having made the decision, then 
you proceed in that course, not like the law of the Medes and the Persians, and there will be a willingness to break it off if there are good and wise reasons in you or in your people, in the circumstances of, of church life or of life in general. But there is that sense, I know where I'm going. I'm going there because I've waited upon God. I've consulted with my fellow spiritual leaders. We all believe this would be most profitable to our people. And you commit yourself to that course of sermons. For most of us, as I said earlier, Spurgeon's advice to, quote, wait until the last hour, until the text is given, would indeed drive us either to madness or out of the ministry itself. And then the final benefit of this kind of preaching, it'll put a wholesome check upon any potential abuse of a man's oratorical powers. And when I read this, it resonated with me. There is something about the discipline of consecutive exposition That if a man has an unusual measure of an imaginative mind, he can think up analogies and he can think up illustrations. If he is of a passionate nature, there is something about this discipline of following the track of God's own mind in consecutive exposition that will keep his oratorical powers in check. It will give him full reign for their expression, but a disciplined reign for that expression. And Alexander, and this is why I love these old writers. You read modern writers, they don't even know such problems exist, that someone might have oratorical powers that could uh, be a hindrance to him. But these old men understood that. And this is what Alexander said. This mode of consecutive expository preaching is less adapted than its opposite, which would be topical or individual textual preaching, to make the speaker a separate object of regard and might be selected by many on this very account. It is now some years since we enjoyed the privilege of listening to the late pious and eloquent Summerfield, the charm of whose brilliant and pathetic discourses will never be forgotten by those who heard them. Remember, pathetic is not used in the sense we use it. That was pathetic. But there was the element of pathos. It was moving at the emotional level. After having on a certain occasion delivered a deeply impressive sermon on Isaiah 6, 1 to 6, he remarked to the writer, that is to Alexander, in consequence of having been pursued by multitudes of applauding hearers, He had been led to exercise himself more in the way of simple exposition as that which most threw the preacher himself into the shade and most illustriously displayed the pure word of God. Then in the next paragraph he addresses or raises the issue of a Dr. Mason and this to me again was most perceptive, the final paragraph in suggesting to his late charge the principles upon which they should select a pastor, Dr. Mason said this, Do not choose a man who always preaches upon insulated text. I care not how powerful or eloquent he may be in handling them. The effect of his power and eloquence will be 
to banish a taste for the word of God and to substitute the preacher in its place. You've been accustomed to hear the word preached to you in its connections, consecutive expository preaching. Never permit that practice to drop. Foreign churches call it lecturing. And when done with discretion, I can assure you that while it is of all exercises the most difficult for the preacher, it is in the same proportion the most profitable for you. It has this peculiar advantage that in going through a book of Scripture, it spreads out before you all sorts of character and all forms of opinion and gives the preacher an opportunity of striking every kind of evil and of error without subjecting himself to the invidious suspicion of aiming his discourses at individuals. And so if any of you listening to my voice have been given by God more than a modicum of oratorical abilities, you're not to bury them, but you're to recognize their dangers and you are to channel them to the optimum edification of your people. Romans 12.3 says we are to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. And it is not right for a man who has been given more than a modicum of oratorical abilities to say, no, I'm just an ordinary speaker. God doesn't call him to that. He is to recognize what God has given but also to recognize the potential dangers connected with what God has given and to strike out in a course of ministry that will minimize the dangers and optimize the benefits of that preaching. Now then, we're going to come to the dangers of excessive or exclusive consecutive expository preaching, having looked at the benefits to the hearers and to the preacher, the potential liabilities. Now then, the dangers of excessive or exclusive consecutive expository preaching. Admittedly, these dangers are much less acute than with the other kinds of sermons. However, I believe they are real dangers, especially where the consecutive expository form of preaching is used exclusively And even more so, where the assertion is made and believed by the preacher that consecutive expository preaching is the only kind of preaching worthy of the name and title biblical preaching. So, let's take up the dangers to the hearers. Number one, our people can become weary of the same basic field of study and meditation, especially if the book expounded is a long and detailed book and our expositions are meticulously detailed. There's some men in their consecutive exposition believe that they have got to expound every single word and phrase to be true to the task of exposition. Now, that's a peculiar gift God gives to some. On the other hand, for a man to do that where he is not particularly gifted and does not have more than a modicum of oratorical skills and powers to maintain interest, it can be wearisome to the people if they are found in the same chapter month after month 
wondering what in the world's going on here. When are we going to get to chapter 2? When are we going to get to chapter 3? And that's one of the dangers. The people can become weary. That's what Spurgeon was alluding to when he talked about that little Gentile lad that after eight lectures on the book of Hebrews, uh, he was finding it hard to suffer the word of exhortation. That's a danger. Now, we acknowledge that there can be a carnal weariness in which people lose their appetite for every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. There's also a weariness rooted in an unwise selection of a particularly demanding book of Scripture, like Carlyle's detailed exposition of the book of Job. It may be good, interesting reading, but imagine sitting there month after month. I don't know how many years it took him to get through what is now embodied in, what, ten volumes? I think it's ten volumes. And you just say, no way. I mean, I find it difficult at times. I just came through the book of Job a few weeks ago in my Old Testament reading to maintain interest. I had to take down Green's commentary, uh, overview to maintain my interest and, and have a sense of moving forward. You get, begin to get weary with these three characters coming to Job and spouting off and Job spouting off in return. And you lose sight of the overarching purpose and thematic drift of the book. But that can be a danger. And while we must never cave into that carnal weariness, pastoral sensitivity will cause us to remember that we are to reflect our Heavenly Father who knows our frame and remembers that we are dust. Secondly, unless one has the gift of covering large segments of the Word of God in a relatively short time, under exclusive consecutive expository preaching, people could sit for years under such a ministry and still be ignorant of some of the most fundamental and pressing issues of biblical privilege, doctrine, and duty. I remember years ago in the early life of Trinity Church, I was preaching through the first two chapters of Ephesians in the morning and expounding the first few chapters of Proverbs in the evening. And when I came to chapter 1 in verse 15, where Paul says he was thrilled to hear the report of their ongoing faith and of their love of the brethren. Here we were, a young church just recently formed. And love of the brethren is such a dominant theme in the scriptures that I said, I'm going to break off the consecutive exposition and bring a series of topical message that messages that will call out major portions of the New Testament and show how dominant is this biblical doctrine of love of the brethren. I knew that in preaching consecutively, I might pick up a passage here and a passage there, but our people needed to see in this formative period and feel upon their hearts a deep and powerful impression of this dominant biblical duty and privilege to love the brethren. So I brought that series. And God has wonderfully used it over the years. Now, a little sidebar. Apart from the fact of the assertion just made, one of the many reasons for the practice of the consecutive reading through the scriptures of the Old and New Testament as part of our Lord's Day liturgy is right here. Exclusive consecutive exposition at a slower pace 
And a ministry there where there's little or no textual or topical preaching, there are going to be whole blocks of Scripture concerning which our people will be ignorant. And so, brethren, I urge you, if you don't follow the counsel of the Directory for Public Worship of the Westminster Standards, I shall never forget how thrilling it was. We came to this conviction from the Scriptures that we ought to read through the Scriptures on a regular basis. And nobody was doing that. I didn't know a place on the face of the earth that was doing it. But in our study of the Scriptures, we came to that conviction. And then I'll never forget what happened when I got hold of a confession of faith in catechisms and directory for public worship. And I said, this is what they're saying every church ought to do. And that sense that we were in that historical stream, it was a thrilling thing. It goes back again many decades. But through the years, I'm persuaded it's been one of the things God has used to get into the bloodstream of the members of Trinity Church, much more Bible than would ever be put into them by my consecutive expository preaching. But there are potential dangers, particularly dangers to the preacher if he's committed as a matter of principle exclusively to this kind of preaching. Number one, the man of God can become insensitive to current needs which ought to be addressed if he is indeed a true shepherd of his people. Think of the Apostle Paul and the way he addressed the pressing issues at the church of Corinth. Had he written to Corinth a letter similar to the book of Romans, he would have been a wretched shepherd to that particular congregation. And Lloyd-Jones goes after this uh, with a vengeance when he writes, anything that happens in the world, anything striking, any phenomenon, is something we should always take advantage of. I remember reading of an incident in the life of John Fletcher of Madeley, that great and saintly man who lived 200 years ago. He was a vicar of Madeley in Staffordshire in England. Suddenly there was a terrible disaster on the River Severn. The Severn bore that year was bigger than usual with the result that large numbers of people were drowned as a result of the flood. This catastrophe led Fletcher to preach a remarkable sermon in which he made frequent references to that tragic happening and which led to tremendous consequences. And then he mentions other incidents And he says at the end of that paragraph, there are times when our hearts are tender and we are more likely to respond. It is the essence of wisdom, indeed, but common sense that we should take advantage of all these things. Though you may have planned out the greatest series of sermons the world has ever known, break into it if there's an earthquake. If you can't be shaken out of a mechanical routine by an earthquake, you're beyond hope. (laughs) The doctor really comes down and rings the changes on that. So there's the first potential danger of consecutive expository preaching to the preacher. He may be insensitive to those things which in the providence of God afford him a marvelous opportunity to attack the consciences of his hearers. Secondly, the servant of God may have a tendency to become less consciously dependent on the Holy Spirit 
since he assumes that the next section of his consecutive exposition is the will of God for his preaching on any given Lord's Day. And he just assumes that. It never occurs to him to say, Lord, the next passage in the Gospel of Mark is such and such, but Lord, is there something you would say to your people? When we have a view of preaching, that our preaching is nothing less than the living Christ in the midst of his gathered people exercising his office as a prophet to our people. When we have that view of preaching, it's a serious thing to stand and say, this is what Christ would say to you today. That's what it is. And we need to maintain that sensitivity. Lord, is there something Give me a mind that will be inclined to discover it. At least open up the possibility that God may want us to break off in that particular series of expositions. Then thirdly, this is one of the potential dangers. The man of God can become paralyzed by the labors of consecutive exposition if he does not occasionally vary his method. For the health of his own mind, it is good at times to take up one of the other kinds of sermons in order to give refreshment to all of the mental furniture. And then fourthly, the preacher may make the mistake of thinking that a mere running commentary on the text is expository preaching while disregarding the principles of effective homiletics and the valid principles of rhetoric. The prophetic, urgent, applicatory dimension of preaching must always be present. And likewise, our sermons must respect those seven axioms that we handled in the last unit, some of which are deeply embedded in the art or science of rhetoric. General revelation, but we must be sensitive to them. I've sat under some consecutive exposition that was utterly flat in terms of those principles of effective oral communication. There was integrity in handling the text, but it wasn't preaching. I could have gone home and pulled some books off my shelf and read them. The sense that Christ was coming to me in the power of the Holy Spirit was not there to any discernible degree. So these are the dangers. Let's seek to be aware of them and by the grace of God be given wisdom to know what kinds of sermons we ought to preach at any given point in our ministries and be instruments of grace and blessing to our people. Well, let's pray together. Father, we're thankful that we are privileged once more to exercise our minds and hearts in these vital issues. We ask that wisdom would be given to us, that we may be the most effective preachers that prayer and pains and good sense will make us. Seal these things to our hearts, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.